Welcome to Biocompatibility. This episode is built by you, our listeners. You all answered my plea for some questions to us, and we've taken our question bag and pulled out some good ones for you. It's been about 40 minutes here addressing some of your questions. We know there's certainly more to be answered, and we appreciate any that you want to send us in the future as well. If you want to know other events and things that we're doing to help keep us all informed and educated during this COVID crisis, please go to www.namsa.com slash events. You can see how we're modifying some things for virtual events, hosting webinars, and educational learning events online. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode where we answer your questions. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, this is Sherry Bivens and Don Pohl. Welcome to a new episode of Biocompatibility, where today, Don, we dig into our listener questions. Yes, the grab bag of questions from our listeners out there. So this accomplishes two things. One, obviously, we answer the questions and hopefully some listeners get some feedback. And two, it confirms that there's people listening. So we have listeners. I can't (laughs) confirm. You know, we've joked that we have about 10 and most of them are friends and family. I have confirmed that we have at least 10 that are not friends and family. So I'm pretty proud about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, my, my my daughter made some of her roommates in college uh, sign up just to, I guess, boost our numbers at the beginning. So I, I don't think they're active listeners, but I don't think we're going to get <laughs> questions from them either. So, <laughs> so we, may have a, we may have a little skew yeah. in our numbers. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. I, that's I, okay. failed, I failed to ask anybody to do that on my behalf, but I'm glad that she did it for us. So yeah, that's our, that's so our minus, email. you know. Yeah, so I sent out out an email, and and these listeners are folks that obviously came through our website, so we had their email, and asked them, you know, if they had any questions for us. So I have about eight or nine questions for us to go through today. I certainly we certainly aren't going to be able to get to them all, but we have several and and several good ones that I think cover uh, several different topics. So we will jump right into it here. The first one, Don, is a question around in vitro alternative methods for biological endpoints. What's our progress there? Do we know? Are we closer on certain ones? And what do you think the likelihood of these things happening? Yeah. And and even though the, the question didn't state it, I got to think the questions probably pointed more towards the topics of irritation and sensitization and, and the, what's going on with that that area. So, you know, those two endpoints covered in ISO 10993 part 10 today, but that standard being broken out into parts 10 and part 23. And then again, I I think, I think from that point of view, the irritation stands the greatest potential for getting, say, regulatory acceptance, or at least getting out into the standard by maybe the end of this year. In terms of sensitization, I don't think there's much as a, a a consensus on that in terms of methods and such. So that might take a few years. But I think irritation, we're we're getting close. 
of course, even if we get the standard released for some in vitro irritation methods, you know, officially and, and you know, it's it's there so we can reference it in the standard. And if the standard comes out and says that they're essentially equivalent to the in vivo model or maybe they give preference to the in vitro model in that case, you know, we'd still have to make sure that all regulatory agencies are going to, you know, follow what the standard says. Um, and the one I'm thinking of is FDA. So basically, is if the standard comes out and says these in vitro methods can be used in place of in vivo methods for this type of irritation response, is the FDA going to buy into that approach right from the get-go? And, and um, I think we, you know, if the standard comes out this year, probably got to wait a little bit longer just to find out what the FDA's basically extent of recognition of that point is actually going to be as well. Right. Yeah, and I know we've worked, NAMSA has worked on some of that work with the in vitro irritation model, and I, I know there's some research that they're looking to publish, I think, to support that. So that'll be real interesting to see how, if that helps any in any way, leverage the position with the FDA if there's some good comparative data out there in a published paper. So that'll be exciting to see, but I don't think it's happening anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. And slow going, but we're getting there. And, um, and, and, you know, I just, I started off just assuming that we're talking irritation and sensitization, but, you know, not to lose focus on all the other in vitro models that are already out there, already being used across the board for things like genotox, obviously cytotox, hemocompatibility. I mean, there's a slew of in vitro hemocompatibility methods that, um, that we use routinely uh, today. I mean, there's still some in vivo models and sprinkled across some of those as well, but um, it is, uh, you know, pretty commonplace to have in vitro methods in some of these endpoints as it stands today, and and they're globally accepted as well. Of course, yep. And we will be having an upcoming episode on one of those models that is being proposed for thrombogenicity as well. We have a uh, an episode coming up soon with a, a guest that's working on that project. So more to come there. So we're talking about the FDA. What genotoxicity methods are considered state-of-the-art for the, for the FDA? Yeah. And, and I mean, for FDA, from their point of view, I think there's two things that we can look at. And that's uh, the FDA's extent of recognition of ISO 10993 Part 3, 2014. And the FDA's biocompatibility guidance from 2016. So those two items uh, align with each other in terms of the genotoxicity methods that the FDA, as well as the ISO standard, would uh, would accept. And 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 again, you know, I still the the most common in vitro methods are you know bacterial reverse mutation assay, otherwise easily referred to as the Ames assay then the mouse lymphoma assay and the chromosomal aberration assay. And those three are listed in FDA's biocomp guidance. Those three are listed in part three, 2014 as well. So yeah, I, I think FDA for them basically is aligned with the standard. On the in vivo side, the mouse micronucleus assay, certainly you've seen that referenced by the FDA as well as in um, ISO 10993. And there are some other assays as well in, in both, but those that I've mentioned are, are certainly the most most common, and I guess if we want to call them state-of-the-art because they're in the standard and they're in FDA's biocomp guidance, then so be it. But again, Part 3 and, and FDA pretty much aligned in the, 
the methods that you would use to support genotoxicity evaluations. Right. Excellent. So this this is a fun one because I think we struggled with this one even internally at NAMSA in what we name how we name documents. And so this one is a is around the difference between a toxicological risk assessment and a biocompatibility risk assessment, or as we call it, a biological risk assessment. So there's there's difference in in naming strategies out there. So Don, could you go over kind of a difference? I guess specifically what the tox risk assessment is, and and then we can talk about how that fits into the overall biological assessment. Yeah, when I hear the name toxicological risk assessment, myself think of it or define it in my head as as something that's specific to a toxicological assessment of a chemical or chemicals. So. Right. With the primary focus there being an evaluation based on ISO 10993 Part 17, just to kind of define it from a standard standpoint. The only reason I say that is just from the name toxicological risk assessment, it's, it's more of that purest sense of actually toxicologically assessing the risk associated with the chemical that's either present in or may come out of a device or does come out of a device. And so you focus on the risk associated with that chemical or those chemicals, and and that's your primary focus because you're doing a toxicological risk assessment specifically for that set of chemicals or chemical. And again, it could be extractables, testing data that you're evaluating. It could be known composition, known residual uh, that's in your product, any of those things. But if all you're doing, I say all, like it's an easy thing, but it's not. Um, but if all, all you're doing is assessing the risk of that chemical, or those chemicals, then I'd call that a tox risk assessment. As compared to a biocompatibility or a biological risk assessment, which to me is a more all-encompassing type topic, because now you might use the tox risk assessment as a component of your overall biocompatibility risk assessment, but for biocompatibility, you have a lot of other things that you're typically going to be discussing. Now, it's not always the same things because it depends on the type of information that you have. But, you know, you certainly may be citing prior use of manufacturing, prior use of materials of construction, prior use of that device in a clinical trial that was in another region of the world. And now you're using it to support the safety as you submit it to, say, FDA or the EU or wherever. You know, data from literature on those materials as well as chemicals, as well as processes biocompatibility test results that you might have, either current results on the device that you are evaluating or data from relevant devices uh, in your history. So basically, the biocompatibility risk assessment or biological risk assessment, from my point of view, is wrapping up all of the things that are mentioned in the scope of ISO 10993 Part 1 and in the principles of Part 1 put together a complete biocompatibility risk assessment, either to establish the plan for what you need to do or what you don't need to do, uh, or a combination of the two. And, and then also, you know, from a report standpoint, a biocompatibility report, you know, again, you would assess things after all that testing was done. So you come up with a plan in your initial biocompatibility risk assessment, you go execute whatever you said you had to do, and then you come back at the end and you evaluate all that data and wrap it up in a report. But I think to me, that whole process is representative of a biocompatibility or a biological risk assessment as compared to just a tax risk assessment. Right. But so 
And, you know, I know we've had discussions internally that really the the biological risk assessment, that, that's a process, like that's an operating system of how you're, you know, the whole thing is evaluating risk. And we, we tend to get hung up on the naming of the documents. 10993 part one calls it a biological evaluation plan and a biological evaluation report and a toxicological risk assessment. Those are all components of the overall, you know, assessment of biological safety. So if we have a big cake, a big cake of biological safety, the, the risk of tox risk assessment might be the eggs, right? So it's exactly. a component of the entire thing to make the whole thing work. Yeah. And, and, That's how and I it, can look at it non-scientifically, of course. <laughs> exactly. So you can have your cake and eat it too. Do the whole, the whole thing. But yeah, they, they, uh, just this discussion, though, certainly also sheds light on, you know, when you're out there shopping around for somebody to help you write some type of risk assessment, just knowing right. what you're getting, you know, yes. because you could have a lot or a little hid behind the, a name. And so just understanding what somebody is giving you for a tax risk assessment versus a biocompatibility risk assessment. And I know from our, our point of view, after the name, we try to provide a bulleted list of items that would represent the scope of the document that we would actually go, would deliver. And, and I think that's just incredibly important to understand because the, the names get thrown around so much that they don't always mean the same thing to, to yep. everyone. It's, yep. it's like our... Yeah, double check that. Make sure that yeah. what, you, what you need is what you're getting. Ask them for more detail in the proposal if necessary to make sure that you understand that they're meeting the scope of what you need. I know that, you know, we've been doing these types of assessments for more than 10 years, probably close to 15 years now. And it's been an evolution of understanding what's necessary, what's needed, what a client might need or not need. And so ask as many questions as you can of whoever's supplying you with these types of assessments to make sure you're getting the right product. Exactly. The, this question used to be, you know, what's the difference between a medical grade and non-medical medical grade? It's kind of similar. It's like that simple. Let's not get started on medical grade, okay? <laughs> <laughs> we were going to do a whole episode on that, weren't we? I think maybe we did. I don't know. Anyways. Um, <laughs> so the next one I wanted to ask you is more uh, directly related to testing. So failed, quote unquote, failed test results, right? Lots of these things don't have pass-fail criteria, but they have scores. And I guess you can assume a pass-fail. So such as thrombogenicity or sensitization, the, the question is, what to do next other than reconducting tests, which reconducting the test is probably not going to happen under GLP unless something drastically changes. So what are some steps to take when there are unexpected test results? Yeah, I guess before I start taking any like testing actions or something like that, because I think that's where a lot of people gravitate towards, you know, they're like, okay, what, what can I do? What testing can I do to offset this result? But I think even from a, a regulator point of view, I think one of the things I see asked quite a bit, and it, to me, it basically makes sense is, is trying to understand root cause to some degree. So if you get a response, you know, trying to investigate before you do anything else, investigating what, you know, what went into the device that was tested so you can understand, is there anything in that product that would correlate to the response that I just saw that I, I didn't think would maybe 
come true. Didn't want to see it, but you know, is there something about my test article that might cause this type of response? I mean, that certainly from a root cause standpoint for the test article might be a place to start or would be a place to start. You could also look into the, the test method itself. And was there anything about the method that now thinking about the composition of the device that uh, you might have been able to anticipate, but just, again, didn't think that it would cause the response that 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 was observed. You could also look into the study details further, you know, looking into the raw data of the study file and and trying to determine if there's anything about uh, the conduct of the study itself that would have led to this result. I guess you always have to prepare yourself as well, assuming that it's a biological study that was performed that we're talking about in terms of failed results. You always have to think about the fact that they that the, these are biological test systems. Sure. As much as we'd like them to be perfect, they're biological, so there can be some variability. We try to control that variability as much as we can, obviously, but there can be outliers from time to time that just cause a, a potential issue. Of course, you know, with all these things thought of, about, trying to be as proactive as you can as well certainly helps thinking about your device's composition and what you know, the testing lab that you just contracted to study through, you know, what they're going to do to your device when they put it into the test, because that doesn't always correlate to what happens clinically. Uh, so you have to, have to be prepared for that, you know, extraction vehicles, extraction temperatures, durations, cutting of devices, all those things can have an impact on what the result is. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Getting that raw data whenever you can might be Super useful in those areas as well. You got, I mean, check your laboratory. People make mistakes. We're all human. So that's definitely one of those things to consider. Next one, we got an FDA theme. I guess we have an FDA theme going here. What has been your experience with using alternative extraction times and temperatures? Do you have any insight into what the FDA and notified bodies will or won't accept as a rationale for altering the extraction time specifically? Yeah. And, and by altering, you know, I'm making... I make a lot of assumptions, I guess. I mean, um, not doing what's listed maybe as an option in Part yeah, 12, yeah, I would guess. Anything that's yeah. not standard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not in the standard in the tables in, the, in Part 12, you know. So I did something other than 50 for 72, 70 for 24, 121 for an hour, 37 for 24, 37 for 72. I created my own extraction temperature or duration or combination of the two. and. I mean, I, I would definitely say from my perspective, I would always try to start with the standard or a standard condition that's defined in part 12. And, and the only time I guess I wouldn't start there is if I have a rock solid justification for why that doesn't make sense for my device. And, you know, the things you got to keep in mind there, I mean, part 12 technically allows for modifications of the standard extraction conditions that are in the standard you know there's one or two sentences in the standard that says you can you can create your own temperature duration combinations but you know you're going to have to justify it so you know before what, have, i go have you that have been successful do you have a specific yeah, one yeah yeah the ones i can think of they weren't the first they weren't the starting point they were the backup plan based on a result that was observed when the exaggerated extraction temperatures or 
durations were used. So I did a cytotox test at 37 degrees Celsius for 24 hours. And my device only literally contacts the patient for an hour. And maybe I had a cytotoxic response of, of some level. So I wanted to follow that up with something that's not as exaggerated. So maybe I take that 24-hour extraction down to four hours, still having you know an exaggeration of the one-hour exposure, just to see if I still elicit the same type of response, or is it you know to some degree time-dependent? And I keep the temperature the same. You know, in that case, 37 degrees Celsius, not much lower. I'm going to be able to go in most cases for that. So yeah, in that that situation, that that's the one that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, right. The other place, um, chemical characterization testing as well. Right. I was just going to ask that. Well, what about chemistry? Yeah. I've seen modifications there of, of, on the kind of the same type of situation. And again, I, I say I always try to start with, with the norm, the, the, the recognized temperature and duration combinations. Just because if it, if it works, then I, have, I, I don't have anything to justify at that point. I, I used a, a standard recognized combination, and hopefully I've, if I can, exaggerated at least the temperature, maybe not duration per se, especially for implants. But, you know, if I can stick with those, there's just less for me to argue with somebody about later on. Sure. Okay. The next one is more of a, um, like a general question for us is... What do we think about the future of biocompatibility? What excites us about the future of biocompatibility the most? And I think, so for me, you know, I love this kind of ever-changing environment as much as it is disruptive to manufacturers at times, I know, when things change, um, but it certainly gets more interesting. And I'm excited about us getting better at performing evaluations that help minimize unnecessary testing. There's, you know, creative approaches to testing that we might be able to implement in the future in vitro models, obviously coming. I love the fact that this continues to change and evolve for us. And, and that excites me. It's something different every day. It's, I'm not getting bored doing this for sure. So I love that um, the biological evaluation is continues to evolve. And I really am glad that we're not just checkboxing a table anymore, because I think that we all have been able to recognize and understand the challenges with that approach. What about you, Don? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, in terms of things that excite me uh, in, in, about biocompatibility, I don't know if excites the right word for what I'm describing, but it's kind of similar to what you were talking about in the sense that I, I guess the reason that I can still do this, you know, after quite a few years of doing it and stay stay focused on it is just because it is an ever-changing type concept. And I mean, the reality is if you look at the grand scheme of things, it's still relatively new in terms of, sure. of, of what we're doing. I mean, you know, it, it's not a concept that's been around for a hundred years and we keep repeating it. You know, it's, it's something that's constantly evolving, constantly changing. I will say at times it feels like you're you're doing the standard two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. So it takes you a little bit longer to get pure progress. But, you know, you got to also think about what we're trying to do. I mean, we're trying to satisfy regulatory bodies around the globe, you know, and and so there's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of 
incredibly intelligent people around the world that are sharing their viewpoints on how to do this one, you know, specific task of proving biocompatibility or demonstrating biocompatibility. So, I mean, it, it, it's just a, like I say, it's just something that keeps you engaged on making improvements and, and learning new stuff all the time because different approaches come into play. And, uh, and so you got to get yourself, you know, up to speed on that approach so that you can just discuss the topic. And I think in today's world, we've all, anybody that's involved with biocompatibility has had to dust the organic chemistry books off a little bit um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and inorganic chemistry books off a, a little bit, just to remember what it was that, uh, you know, some professor talked about back in the day, but, um, myself, I, Certainly try to leave that to the uh, practicing chemists uh, and, and let them do their thing. But you just at least got to know the concept. And I think that's, that's great. And, and then just seeing people come into the industry as well and just be really, you know, excited about it. And then, you, you know, you crush their spirit a little bit with all the stuff that they have to think about. But, but it just said, you know, it gives them the, the opportunity to, to accept the challenge and, and grow into it and you know, sharing those experiences. I think all of that is really, to me, every day is, is, is exciting. And I'd say the other thing I like about it is it's just the collaborative effort, especially in today's world. You know, I don't know that there's a day that goes by where I don't talk to a chemist, a toxicologist, microbiologist, yeah. almost all in the same day sometimes. Yeah. Because everything's, you know, merging together as it should. Yeah, and we, you know, we have a great advantage, whereas at NAMSA, we have all of those things under one roof. And obviously, people that specialize in just evaluating biocompatibility every day, so they're able to stay highly informed on all the changes. I can't quite grasp how that would be like being a manufacturer, especially if I only do a new device every couple of years. The learning curve for me to even get back to where I need to be, I think, would be challenging. So we're super fortunate in the fact that we're doing this every day for all different kinds of devices and see all different kinds of responses and reactions from the regulatory bodies. So that's yeah. extremely exciting from my standpoint too. Yeah. And, and, and like the go, global approach as well, because I right. mean, th there will be days just within NAMSA's walls, virtual walls, obviously, but um, you know, where we're sharing emails or having discussions with our colleagues in Japan, China, Europe, and the United States, you know, whether they be chemists, toxicologists, whatever, but we're all talking about biocompatibility and we're doing it. And, and so I, I guess we sort of get spoiled from that point of view as well. But yeah, I would, I would hate for, for sure. We're very lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm bouncing those top, those ideas and things that I'm thinking about off of, you know, a lot of different people, because I don't want to assume that my answer is the only answer because it's certainly when it comes to biocompatibility, it's not, I know that for sure. Right. Okay. Um, so here's another one. What experiences have you had leveraging chemical characterization and a tox assessment to support material equivalency assessments for modifications to materials in a, an approved device? So we have something out there. We're making a change. How you know how successful or have you have you had experiences leveraging characterization in that regard? This person is asking for any advice for them to think about as they face this kind of project very often. So I think it's a super challenging opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
And and I mean, I'll say in the short history uh, um, of you know in terms of chemical characterization and it being used and you know even risk assessment in the way that we're using it today, certainly I've seen the idea of equivalency based on extractables data uh, used successfully in the past. I, I've seen it being used currently as well. And I've, I've seen it challenged by regulatory bodies for various reasons. So I think it's an area where we have to be careful and uh, make sure that what we're trying to prove is definitely going to be supported by, you know, some type of logic. And, and one place to go to is certainly still Annex C of ISO 10993 Part 18, uh, especially the 2020 version. You know, in, in, in the... Uh, beginning of that annex, one of the things that it it does now make sure that you think about is, you know, the idea of chemical equivalence versus physical equivalence versus material equivalence, contact equivalence, and biological equivalence. And I think what we're trying to prove in most cases at the end of the day is bio, biological, which takes into account all of those things. But to reach that endpoint, you know, it's not only a discussion that, like from an extractable point of view, that two devices produce an equivalent extractable profile. But if it's an implant or something that has tissue contact, we also have to make sure that the response locally to that material, the physical nature of that material is also equivalent. So, you know, if you have a modification of a catheter that goes in a vessel, um, you know, you might be able to establish chemical equivalence through extractables testing. But you can't forget about the, the physical equivalence, you know, the, the contact equivalence between that material and the circulating blood, you know, at least conceptually to think about it, because you got to make sure that that response has, isn't going to be changed because of the physical, or, or, uh, physical changes to the you know, construction of the device as compared to just what chemicals might come out. Because to get to that biological endpoint, we'd have to make sure that both of those are, are equivalent. So, you know, we just don't want to always just think of it as a, a measure of extractables from, you know, device A versus device B. It, it's a bit more than that. And again, Annex C of uh, the new version of Part 18 um, tries to put that into the correct context as, as well. So, and the other thing, even on the extractable side, one thing I'll note too is that that concept of extractables, especially from a testing perspective is changing very quickly, I will say. Testing that you did today or testing that you're doing today, just in terms of methods, may not be certainly equivalent to testing you did two, three, four, five years ago. So you got to watch out for changes in methodology as well to make sure that, you know, that you actually have similar data being collected and you can actually do an adequate comparison of those two data sets, which Again, be a little challenging because you have to understand what was done in the past and compare it to be to what's going to be done um, currently. So, yeah, again, just another thing that you have to watch out for to make it work well. Excellent. Yeah, I think just again those those evolving challenges that we get to experience with something like equivalency certainly can can be difficult, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. I was just going to say, especially when some of those uh, those items aren't written down in the standard anywhere. 
you know, right. expectations of how the testing should be done and the details, you don't find all those details in part 18. So again, it's just something, one of many things to watch out for when trying to use equivalency concepts. Right. Well, excellent. Thank you, Don. And thank you listeners for your questions. You can always reach out to us um, and send us more questions if you'd like. Um, Don and I are both pretty active on LinkedIn. Well, I'm pretty active. Don's on there and he's active when I'll tag him and tell him. To exactly. Sure, sure. He reminds me to be active on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you will see a message if you need to message him something uh, yes. on, on LinkedIn. Also, if you want to know more about events that, that we're doing. So because of today's environment, those of you that are listening to this in the future, this is our COVID-19 summer. So we're currently in our COVID caves doing the best that we can. But if you want to look at different events that we might be having, Don and I are working on a couple of different virtual events. We've had a couple recently. You can always go to www.namsa.com slash events, and that will take you right to a listing of other educational options we have from webinars to virtual trainings to online training. There's all kinds of things available. So continue to uh, reach out to us there. That would be great. Thank you, Don. I think that we have successfully wrapped another episode. Excellent. Another one in the books. So uh, we'll another move on to book. something else. All right. Thanks, y'all. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.